Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rouleur interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rouleur.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rouleur and this is Rouleur Conversations. We're going to be talking today about two very different races that took place over the last week. First, I'm going to catch up with Volata editor Olga Avalos, who covered the newly extended Vuelta Femenina in its new May slot. Then we'll catch up with Rouleur's roving photojournalist James Start, who is busy brushing the dust out of his camera lenses after spending the day on a race moto at the Breton race Trobo Leon. But first, La Vuelta Femenina. Olga, welcome back to Rouleur Conversations. How are you? Hello, Ed. Uh, tired, but very happy. Looked like an amazing race and Quite a tough race to cover as well. Have you recovered? Uh, well, to be honest, not yet. <laughs> because we, I mean, as a journalist, we had to drive a lot of kilometers every day from one stage to another, which is, uh, well, maybe one of the things that the organization will have to change for next year because the, the transfers were very long. But it was very exciting to cover it. I mean, it was tough, but very exciting. You even got the weather forecasts correct? You said uh, a couple of weeks ago in real conversations that the weather would get bad in the north of Spain and it did. That's it, that's it. They started with uh, sunny with sunny weather, high hot uh, temperatures and then uh, when they went to the north so it was a little bit more cloudy, even rainy and in the last stage, Lagos de Covadonga, there was blood, mist everywhere so it was a very humid weather. So, in a brief overview of the race, Jumbo Visma had the better of the early stages. They won the opening TTT, and Marianne Voss won two group sprints in the first four days, while Charlotte Kuhl took out the bunch sprint on day two. As the terrain got more challenging, the GC contenders really came to the fore. Demi Vollering won the punchy finish at Mirador de Peñas Lanyas. I see Olga wincing at my pronunciation. Just ahead of Annemiek van Vleuten. 
after a superb show of strength up the final climb. Stage 6 was won by Guy Raiolini ahead of Van Vleuten after the race broke up in possibly controversial circumstances. Vollering was caught the wrong side of a split, which she and her team insinuated had been instigated by Van Vleuten's Movistar team after Vollering took a natural break. Movistar, on the other hand, insisted that they were executing a pre-planned move. The result was that Vollering conceded over a minute to her Dutch rival. So the race was perfectly balanced going into the final stage to Lagos de Covadonga, where form suggested Vollering would put time into Van Vleuten. But would it be the 71 seconds she needed? In thick Asturian mist, Vollering duly dropped Van Vleuten and won the stage, but the world champion fought all the way to the line in her wake and won the GC by just nine seconds. Riolini filled the third spot on the podium. So Olga, I really enjoyed the Vuelta. I thought it was a great race, a real, you know, a real crescendo all the way from the start to, to finish is what all great stage races do. Do you think it settled well into its new slot in May? That's a good question. Racing in Spain, the weather can be an element that can change the way you can race. I mean, maybe in some areas it's made too hot or too cold. There's rain, there's sun, there's wind. So the weather can can be an element to, to consider. And in May, actually, it's a good time to race in, in Spain because you have the weather more or less under control. But the thing is that there's a lot of races in Spain in May, in the women's world tours. Then you have the Itzulia, then you have Vuelta Burgos. There's a lot of things going are going on. And most of the girls were saying that maybe it's too much putting a grand tour like this in May. And actually, the last day, most of the journalists were asking the organization, are you going to change this or do, do you consider to change this? And they say that they are thinking about it because maybe May it's too busy for, for the girls. Yeah, I guess we'll know later on. It's the kind of thing that, you know, the fatigue accumulates and the stress accumulates over a long time and you see the season as a whole, maybe an adjustment might be necessary in future seasons. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But the thing is that where do you accommodate La Vuelta instead? Because then you have the Giro and then you have Tour de France. Do you have to do it after the Tour de France, like the men's Vuelta? It's a it's a tricky question because uh, you know because La Vuelta can be with this first edition, let's say first edition because uh, this uh, the first edition as a as a Grand Tour, La Vuelta wanted to position themselves as a good uh, Grand Tour as a not the third one like in the men's calendar, you know. So because sometimes La Vuelta is uh, most of the of the cyclists they race La Vuelta because. They had a crash, maybe a Giro or a Tour de France. So, okay, so we have that, that, like the third opportunity. <laughs> we go to La Vuelta to see what, what we can do, no? But in this case, I mean, in the women's cycling, La Vuelta wanted to to position themselves in another in another way. So if they change it in the calendar, so maybe it can happen the same like in the men. And I guess it's only two weeks really since the classics finished and we saw... You know, some of the protagonists of the hilly classics, you know, for example, Demi Vollering, obviously had a great classic season and has managed to hold her form through to May. But I guess the longer the season goes on, with, with squads not being that huge in the Women's World Tour, that has to be taken into consideration. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, in Women's Tour, everything is like, uh, you know, it's changing at the moment. And talking to Javier Guillén, which is the the CEO of, of uh, Unipublic, which is the the main company that organizes La Vuelta España and Vuelta Femenina and other races in Spain. So talking to him in the, la- in the last stage, he was like, because I was asking him if putting Lagos de Covadonga as the final climb 
it was a good idea because some of the girls were complaining, well, not complaining, but they were wondering what would have happened if Lagos de Combadonga was, you know, in another stage. Because, uh, you know, it's a, a kind of a stage that you cannot, I mean, if you're wearing the red jersey, you cannot show it properly in front of a big audience because only a few people can go to the, <laughs> to the climb, no? So it's a little bit, it's a very nice ending, but at the same time, you don't have the, the same visibility, no, in like in in another kind of uh, stages, and I asked him about it, and he, and he said to me, well, but the thing is that we can try another format next next year and the other thing and the other year. So somehow there's that feeling that in in women's cycling they can still experiment with formats with the narrative of a race and things like that. So we are still building. <laughs> how 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 is it, you know? And depending on that. So the, the girls, since everything is changing, the girls have to change the preparation every every year in another way. It's like, for instance, now we saw Demi Bollering keeping the, how do you call it, the shape that he she had in the spring classics. She was superlative in this, uh, in this Vuelta. But then we saw Annemiek van Bloten better, much better than we expected, because now she's starting to get to be, you know, to be fit for for Giro and Tour de France. So if they change it, <laughs> they will have to change the preparation. I don't know. <laughs> I like to keep the riders guessing. Yeah. Let's talk about the really big issues in the race. I felt that stage six seemed to be the crux of the race, the really crucial point. And there was a bit of talk after the stage that Movistar had taken advantage of SD Works having a nature break. Uh, Movistar, of course, insisted that they were executing a, a pre-planned move. So do you have an opinion on whether Movistar were right or wrong to attack? And what was your sense in the race about you know, how people reacted to that? That was the, the question that, uh, you know, everybody was talking about this in the last few stages. My opinion is that as the works, they choose the bad moment to have the that uh, be pistol, to, to say it like that. So they choose the, the worst the worst moment of for doing this, and uh, Movistar took advantage of this. Of course, I really believe they they plan in advance to to do the echelons and everything in that moment. I really believe that. But by chance, they saw that something was happening with the SD works, and and they say to themselves, "Okay, uh, never mind. So let's do it as we as we plan." They could have stopped it. They could have do it. Maybe they could do it maybe a few kilometers later. But, um, you know, it was a mixture of uh, a lot of things. But also, uh, I have another point of view about all this, is that there's something going on here between Anna van der Breggen and Annemiek van Bleuten that it's not a new thing, that it's something that is... Um, it's coming from the past. Yeah, and Anna van der Breggen is van Vleuten's old rival and now is a director sportif at SD Works, of course. Yeah, so there's something going on there. <laughs> You're suggesting that the rivalry is still a keenly contested one between those two individuals? I think so, because the last stage, the situation, it was a funny thing because uh, after the fifth stage, the only team that was speaking about what happened was Movistar. And they were like explaining to everyone what they had planned, that then they, I'm sorry. I mean, if they choose a bad moment to, to have a peace, so it's their problem. So we, we had our plan and we, and we did it. But as the worst, they didn't 
to uh, to give any statement, to talk to the press. Even I talked to some people from a, a television from the Netherlands, and I said to them, did Anna van der Breggen or anyone from the team speak to you? And they said, no, they don't want to even speak to us. So it's like, oh, <laughs> something's going on here. So they have to, I guess they, they had to process what happened. And after Lagos de Covadonga, I saw Anna van der Breggen around there, the packing, and I said to myself, it's now or never, I have to talk to her. So I went there and said, Anna, can I ask you a couple of questions? And she was like very serious, like, yeah, of course, go ahead. And, <laughs> and then I asked him about everything. And she recognized that uh, they choose a bad moment for that P-stop. But Movistar, uh, they should, I mean, because and Demi Bollering was the leader of La Vuelta. And in that moment, they should uh, stop. So they shouldn't do it what they did even if it was a mistake from them, you know? So I could feel there's a hard feelings still there. <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because yeah. really there is no rule that says a team can or cannot. I know we talk about unwritten rules, but you know the point about unwritten rules is they're not written down anywhere. And I guess Movistar have to do a cost-benefit analysis. They have to think the risk is that they make themselves extremely unpopular and next time... It'll be them on the receiving end. On the other hand, they won the Vuelta, so that all has to be taken into account. But of course, this will have ramifications in future events, but that is how cycling works, isn't That's it? That's it. I mean, we'll we'll see this in, in Giro and Tour de France. I don't know if you say this in English, but this is like gasoline to the fire, you know? Yes, adding, <laughs> adding fuel to the fire. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> So this, uh, yeah. So they will. Th- this uh, will have like a second and a third chapter in the next races, and I think this is good for cycling, for the narrative of wo- woman cycling, and it's good we have this kind of rivalities. So I like that, and and I have to tell you another thing. So when I talk, was talking to those journalists from Netherlands, and they said that they and they told me that uh, Anna van der Brengen, uh, she didn't want to make any official statement of what happened. They also talked to uh, Jumbo Visma. Of course, they wanted to give their opinion on what, what happened, and they agree Movistar. They said, yeah, as, uh, as they work, they, they made a mistake. Was there any, any impression at all that throughout the whole spring, SD Works were killing everybody in the races? They won virtually every big race, and they often had first and second or first and third in the big spring classics. Is there any impression that the peloton as a whole might have been happy to watch the boot being on the other foot yeah i think it's a it's like a like a mission everybody has to beat them so they want to beat them they have to use any any opportunity to to do it and so the the good news about that move and that result was that it actually perfectly set up the race for lagos to covadonga for the summit finish because i think it was quite clear that Vollering was the stronger rider in a pure physical test because the stage five finish, a punchy, a shorter uphill finish, but still a real intense, pure test of strength. She beat Van Bloosen to the line. And so we could probably predict that Vollering would be the better climber on Lagos to Covadonga. But Van Bloosen has all her experience and one minute and 11 seconds lead. So in a way, it was the best possible thing for the race. And that final stage to Lagos to Covadonga I thought was really really exciting. It was uh, the perfect ending, the perfect finish I mean of the race. I know that uh, the organization of the, of La Vuelta they expected there were competition, rivality 
but they didn't expect it uh, will end in this way. So it was perfect for them. And they, you know, at the end, they were super happy, like, oh, we did the best race of the world. Well, they were like, a <laughs> I don't know if you say that in, in English, but they were like chickens, you know. <laughs> I don't know how we'd say that in English. <laughs> well, I guess we'd say they were just like chickens. Well, you know, when you have your chest like very big, like a balloon, and you are like a chicken going around. Okay. Yeah. So they yeah. were like that. <laughs> <laughs> fighting so, hens yeah <laughs> and they were a bit like concerned like oh i don't know if we'll be able to repeat this next year because of course next year's they they won't have lagos de covadonga because they want they don't want to repeat it was good to have this this climb because it has a long history in cycling and it was very exciting to you know so a woman can put her name in the history. It was very nice when a few hours later in webs like Pro Cycling Stat, you could see, you know, like a list of names with, uh, you know, Marino Lejarreta, Pedro Delgado, Primo Roglic, Nairo Quintana, and then ah, Demi Wollering. And it was super nice to see this. Really, it was a great race for the Dutch because they won five out of the six road stages and Jumbo Visma, a Dutch team, won the... TTT as well. That's been a continuing story in cycling for years now, hasn't it? Best The best part of 10 years. Yes, that's it. And to be honest, I don't know how long it will be like this. I mean, Annemiek van Bloten, she's retiring this year. Of course, Demi Wallering, she will have like a long, long career. And um, I don't know. And the best teams are, you know, SD Works, Jumbo Visma, as you said. But at the same time, we need to look at it in another way. We need to look what's what is happening behind the Dutch, what's going on there. And uh, and one of the things that we saw in this world España is that there's still a big difference between World Tour teams and continental teams. So so it's good they have like a super high level. I mean those girls, but we I think. It's very important we look how can we make all those continental teams to have a higher level because otherwise, you know, it's very un- unbalanced. And every year is less unbalanced, but I think we need to work on on the other side. Let's talk about Gerrielini, who's the only non-Dutch stage winner. She was third overall, took that stage win. Um, she was second on Lagos de Covadonga and even made the move, which dropped Annemiek van, van Vleusen there. And she was 2.41 down at the end, which is exactly the same time that she conceded in a split in the crosswinds on stage three, which you also predicted a couple of weeks ago. What was your impression of Gaia Realini? She's a great climber, a great cyclist, and she, she proved it. I mean, because the, 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 and the way she, she sprinted Annemiek van Vleuten in, um, in Laredo. So in the way she sprinted, uh, because she... She she won that um, that stage to Annemiek van Bloten. I think uh, she will do great things in in the future. One of the things that maybe I didn't like is that, uh, or maybe because she was following instructions from the team, is that she was like all the time behind how do you call it the behind the wheel, you know, behind the wheel of the other of Annemiek. So she still don't have the, the the confidence to maybe to propose something to to attack, but. She has the, the, physically she's super strong and she's a good climber, but now we, we have to see how she evolves as a cyclist that uh, can attack, 
can propose things to the race, can move the race, can change what's going on. And then, and I think this is uh, this is something we'll see maybe next year. And the other really successful rider in the race was Marianne Voss, who just keeps on going, keeps on winning races, and won two stages and wore the red jersey here. I'm super fan. I'm big. I'm the biggest fan of Marianne Voss. I think she she has like a big class. She's uh, she's great. She's super clever. She knows how to position herself in the races. She's a uh, you know, I think for me, she's the best. <laughs> she's the best. It's very nice to see that uh, after all the wins uh, she had, she still has hunger. She still wants to win. And she knows how to sprint and she knows how to how, how to position her, herself. And uh, I really think that uh, she's, uh, of course, maybe she's not capable anymore to win a, a Grand Tour because as a climber, she's not as good as she used to be. But I think she's very respected in the peloton and she's all the time like um, taking the advantage of uh, the, the kind of cyclist she is now. And she, yeah, so, and I don't know. Yeah, so she, she's there. She's there and I hope she's <laughs> she will be there <laughs> all the time. So overall, what do you think your long-term memories and impressions of this Vuelta will be? For me, beyond the, the big names, beyond what happened with uh, Demi Bollering and Annemiek uh, van Bleuten and yeah, and all those big names, for me, the, the memory I had as a, is uh, how all the Continentals team were struggling and were fighting every day to finish all the stages with the best they can with the resources they have, because you could see like big buses from those big teams and then, you know, like a small caravans for the other ones. But uh, for me, my memories will be how the all those continental teams are fighting to make the women's sport bigger because they don't have it easy. So and some of those girls after the race on the next Monday, they, they will have to go to work, you know. So... Um, for me, this is the what I what I feel. This is uh, the best. I mean, to see the commitment of of these girls, they were so happy to be there, so happy, and I think this uh, this is the best. Thank you, Olga. You deserve a rest, but Julia <laughs> starts this week and Vuelta Burgos the following week. Listeners should look out for Olga's beautiful magazine Volata, and if you can read Spanish, you'll get no better insight into the sport from a Spanish perspective. Thank you for coming on, Olga. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 119, The Soul Issue. Cycling, both as a sport and activity, is all about soul. As cyclists, we know that the bike is the most efficient way of getting us from A to B. But riding also makes our hearts sing. Cycling makes us feel. Rouleau 119 features an exclusive interview with Remco Evenepoel, the world champion and one of the current generation of cycling superstars. He tells us why the Giro d'Italia makes him dream and reveals how he has tried to smooth some of his rougher edges. Also in Rouleau 119, Victoria Pendleton, the multiple Olympic champion whose post-racing life has been a process of constant reinvention. The soul of bike racing. Cycling fandom in the 1980s and what it says about cycling fandom. Enzo Staiola, the former child actor who appeared in the seminal Italian movie Bicycle Thieves, a reflective journey across Morocco, on Guza bikes, Wabi Sabi and riding in Japan, and much, much more. 
Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Ruler 119 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. I'm joined now by James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist. James spent the weekend in deepest, darkest Brittany at the Trobro-Léon race, where he was on a race moto, and also on a mission to photograph Audrey Cordon-Rajot for the magazine. James, Trobro-Léon is the original gravel race, dude. In many ways it is. It's like now, it's like it's 39th year, 40 years, and they have like over 30 kilometres of these gravel sections, uh, which are basically farm roads that they call Ribin. Each one is a kilometer and a half, two kilometers, something like that. Uh, some with some climbs, pretty grueling race and spectacular uh, because in addition to the gravel, they also have, I want to say miles and miles, but kilometers and kilometers along this beautiful uh, Brittany coastline. It was just stunning. And Brittany is, is, is interesting. There's part of Brittany and part of the Breton that look out to the sea and part that look inwards. And this race brings the two together. It goes along this magnificent coastline and then it comes in and races on these really intense gravel roads. We'll get to the culture and meaning of the race later on. I know we both like to dig deep into that, but what actually happened in the race? You know, it's really a race of attrition. Now, it had been raining for days before the Cyclo Sportif, which was the day before, was like basically in a mud bath. And then the rain stopped long enough for us to have our race, which was really helpful because it would be disaster trying to navigate motors on that, let alone bikes, right? But the, 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 the ravine were pretty thick, you know, and it just made it for a real race of attrition. And that's what it was, you know, just slowly... The biggest teams like Lotto and a few of the other teams, uh, Francaise Dijon, Groupama, really just kept the pace high and guys just kept getting shelled. And finally, there's a group of about eight guys for the sprint and, you know, Giacomo uh, Nizolo just powered away uh, in front of uh, Arnaud Delis from Belgium. So, you know, real class riders winning a really hard race. That's a good result for Nizzolo, isn't it? Because Dili has been one of the revelations of the past year or so, hasn't he? And he's, he's won a lot of races. He's been up there and he's a very, very good sprinter. And Nizzolo maybe, you know, he's, he's not as young as he once was. And maybe his success, he has less success than he used to. He's a you know, former points jersey winner in the Giro d'Italia. And a very good race for him and his team. Well, it, it was. Uh, Dili really took the race by hand. I mean, you could actually see him at the front, you know, 20, 30k out. He really he rode like the favourite. Nizzolo was very smart. Barely saw him all day. But when I look back on it, it was a very good race for Nizzolo, this kind of race, because he's a very power-based sprinter. Um, and he's a strong guy who can get over climbs and stuff. And like, I remember the stage that he won, was it two years ago in the Giro d'Italia? He put on some gigantic chain ring. I mean, it was just like this gigantic gear. So it's one of those things when he can really use power in the sprint, it's to his advantage. And I think that's what came in handy here. Of course, Brittany is renowned as being one of the sports hotbeds. It's a region that loves cycling. There's a lot of races going on. There's an almost independent calendar of races every weekend. How was the atmosphere at the race? As you would expect from Brittany, I mean, it was tremendous. Very uh, w- very warm, good crowds out on the Ribin. 
and along the roadside. It's considered by many uh, sort of the cradle of French cycling. I mean, this is the home of Bernard Hinault. This is the home of Louis Saint-Bobet, Jean Robic. Uh, so many great Tour de France winners have come from here. You got to be tough to ride a bike in Brittany because it rains all the time. I mean, there is just no way that the weather channels can get this right because there's so many micro climates around Brittany and the, and, and stuff coming off of, off of the sea for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. I mean, it's just always there. Actually, I was on the plane back to Paris with um, uh, Valentin Madois, uh, who lives there. Uh, he wasn't on the race. He was actually handing up water bottles to his teammates. And then we sat together on the plane coming home. And I was like, man, how do you guys train here? And he was like, you know, you, there's, there's always a break in the day. Uh, you just got to kind of play it by ear and uh, be aware and look at look at it. And like yesterday, he got out, uh, you know, the day before it rained all day and then it let up. So he went out and, you know, and I guess they get used to riding with rain jackets and stuff in their pocket. But, you know, and but it makes you tough. These are tough riders and you got to be tough in bike racing. And this is a good school for toughness. The farm tracks, the gravel sections, the, the ribin, how do they compare with you know, the, the cobbles of Flanders and northern France and the Strade Bianche of, well, Strade Bianche. <laughs> well, they're definitely more closely aligned with Strade Bianche. I mean, uh, they're not as white, but they are basically dirt gravel roads. They're not co cobbles like Flanders or Roubaix. That said, Jean-Paul, the uh, race organizer and founder of the race, you know, he was inspired by Paris-Roubaix because there was no Strade Bianche back in the day. This, this race is 40 years old. And he was, he was enamored with Perry roubaix and, and he said to me, he said, you know, I used to watch Perry roubaix and when I, I would grow up watching Perry roubaix it was in black and white. And when the guys were riding down the gutter, it looked like these Rubin. And I thought, I want to try to bring some of that vibe over here to Brittany, and I think it would be a great success. And it has been a resounding success. So uh, even though it was inspired by Perry roubaix I would say that, that the roads themselves actually resemble much more Strade Bianchi. You mentioned the organiser there, uh, Jean-Paul Melouet. He's organised the race since the beginning. He's quite a character, isn't he? He's, a, he's an artist, race organiser, cycling fan, and quite a charismatic gentleman. He is. He's well-loved there. Guitar player, too. He's well-loved. He's a very popular figure among the people there because, you know, he brought this race there, and he's actually passing it over. Uh, ASO contacted him the Tour de France organizers, and they are basically buying the race from him. But it's a long, slow process. Um, and I, I was on the plane going over with one of the ASO guys, and I said, so how many of you guys are there right now? I said, oh, very small. We're keeping it quiet, keeping it discreet, you know, giving the, the Bretons their, their chance to, to pass it gently. And I said, well, considering they're Breton, you better, you better be very respectful of them because they love cycling so much and they're very proud. And he just nodded and said, yes, we are. Um, but it'll be interesting because I always kind of felt like this race didn't get what it deserved. I mean, Jean-Paul has done everything he can, but he didn't have money of RCS or ASO to really develop it into a huge international race. I mean, at, on the, say the level with Strade Bianchi. And now I think maybe with ASO, they want to take this race to another level. Um, I think there's another two years where Jean-Paul is really uh, in, in control and then he'll pass the reins over to ASO. But I'll be really curious to see where they take it. I hope they leave the and respect the old school charm that is there. We've been talking a lot about soul in bike racing. This race, this race has soul. It's that the whole sign-in is held in, in this gymnasium with big murals of bike racers and, 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 and stuff. And then they have paintings of all the previous winters framed along the side. And there's a couple hundred people are having a very early, late morning lunch, I guess you would call it, as the riders come up on stage and get presented. 
and it's just a, a warm vibe that goes very deep. And then, and then, you, hey, we cannot ignore the piglet, can we? We cannot ignore the piglet. So I was going to get to the piglet, James. <laughs> I knew you would not ignore that. So the piglet, so that the best regional rider is awarded a piglet, not a pig, a piglet. And I asked Jean-Paul, I said, so what is it with this piglet? You know, I mean, is this some sort of sponsor from the pork farmers or something? I don't know. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, it came from the farmers, the local farmers, as a just of our solidarity. Uh, he said, you have to remember, we are sharing these roads with the farmers. These are their roads, 364 days a year. And they lend these roads to us. And we try to respect them and give back and, and, and whatever. But he said, the farmers initiated this as a sign of, of our goodwill and, and cooperation. And, and, and he said, there's, there's nothing really commercial about it. It's just something that shows our connection with, with this countryside. And uh, Laurent Pichon uh, won the piglet this time. I think he's won it before. A multiple, a multiple piglet winner. <laughs> he is. He's got more than one piglet. Yeah, but the thing, you know, they give it to the regional rider because a lot of these, you know, this is farmland. And a lot of these regional riders know somebody, have family or somebody that they can give it to. Like if you give it to the, the winner, they got to get the, the piglet back on the airplane. I don't know if that would pass the security checks these days, you know. They give it to the regional winner, so there's a connection even more with this region. So it's, 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 it's kind of charming. Yeah, the, it's the complication of handing over animals as prizes in races. I remember Robbie McEwen told me when I did his book with him, he won a prize Charolais cow in a stage of the Tour de France and ended up selling it to Bernardino. Um, out the back of the podium for a handful of, <laughs> handful of French francs. I remember uh, in 98 in Ireland, uh, Tom Steele's won a horse. And I asked him later, I saw him about oh, about five, six years ago. I said, what, whatever happened to that horse you won? I said, oh, I took it back. I have I have some land or I have somebody has some land. And, you know, he brought it back to Belgium. He kept the horse. Yeah, he kept the horse. He got it back from Ireland. So, you know, they're, they're, these are prized possessions. Going back to the ASO issue. Now, one of the things that's always attracted me about this race is that it it is a little secretive indie race that happens up in a corner of France. It doesn't get a huge amount of publicity and you know it's not a world tour race. So it feels like a really nice little secret. Is there any danger that, you know, like an indie band selling out to a big record label, that it will lose something in that transition? Absolutely. I only hope that ASO respects the tradition that's been established. It kind of depends what their ambitions are, I guess. If they want to take it to the world tour level, it's going to be great for the prestige and the visibility of the race. But yes, it's going to have a lot more of the uh, ASO protocol, organization, all of this. I don't know if they'll still allow the piglet. I just don't know. But we'll just have to see where, where it goes uh, with that. But it has been a well-kept secret. It's, it's funny. I posted a couple of my uh, pictures on, on Instagram and Facebook and the amount of people it just typed in and said, oh, what a special race that one is and how great it was. A lot of people have memories of this race and good memories. Let's talk a bit more about Brittany because I, I, I love this region of France. I feel an affinity with it because I'm from the southwest of England, which is geologically and meteorologically very similar. But there's just something about Brittany, isn't there? The landscape, the atmosphere, the fact that there's you're really only between rain showers coming in from the, the west that just it creates an atmosphere all of its own it's a very mystical place as well you you get the feeling that the history goes back a long way um, there are old weathered crosses carved out of stone everywhere in the region there's a lot of granite walls and 
old buildings. So tell us more about the, the landscape and the culture and the scenery. Well, I agree very much with this. And I actually, Ed, you probably don't know this, but when I was a kid, when I was like 12, 13 years old, I actually lived in, uh, on the southern coast of Ireland for a year in a little fishing village called Glandor. Uh, and we, I went to a little two-room school there, and I, after school, I went on the playroom farms and and rode these old draft horses and whatnot. Hey, it was one of the great years of my child life. But every time I go to Brittany, it reminds me of that. And, you know, they have, A, the connection to the, the Celtic tradition is strong, and, and both Ireland and and uh, and Brittany share that. They have Celtic festivals in Brittany. So it's very much that, and you know, and you can just sort of look at the shorelines, and they look like, you know, that part of... So, I don't know. I don't know uh, southern England as well, but the southern coast of Ireland looks very similar to to that of Brittany, and I imagine certain parts of southern England. By by chance, did you know this? Another factoid. Uh, actually, there's a little lighthouse in southern England called Start Point. You have mentioned this to me before, but this would be a first for the listeners to have <laughs> conversations. And years ago, I actually uh, was working and living in Saint Malo, which is on the northern tip of of Brittany. And I, I got invited to go out on a sailboat one day and we were out sailing and the guy says, yeah, sometimes I sail over to Stark Point. So all of these things are connected. All of these regions. You must have some affinity with Celtic landscapes and culture. I guess I do. But you know, anytime I'm, I'm there, yeah, it, it calls to mind that including the rain and the way that this sort of sheets of rain just come off the sea and, and just hit the land in literally in sheets. You can just see these sheets being carried by the wind. And that's one of the only places where I've seen that. And I see it both in Ireland, I've seen it here in Brittany. Yeah, going to take a little cultural musical tangent here as well and recommend that listeners take the time to... I find some pictures of the, the Breton coastline, which is very dramatic, very rocky, and looks out west to the full expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. And um, there's an old Celtic myth from Brittany of a lost city, which is disappeared beneath the waves off the west coast uh, called Is. There's a very famous piece of music composed by Claude Debussy, the impressionist French composer, called La Cathédrale Engloutie, which is about every now and again the, the city of East rises up out of the Atlantic Ocean off the west of Bristol and you can hear the church bells and the noise of the city and the sounds of the city just for you know, one day a year. And I'd really recommend people look at the photos Imagine looking out to sea and listening to that piece of music because it's an absolutely beautiful piece of music. But you mentioned earlier on the, you know, the the fact that Brittany does face out to the sea, and also it's very, it's very rural and got this kind of bedrock of granite. So it's got this combination of the sea and the land, which is again you it it makes it unique as a region. And the race you said also makes the most of that distinction. Absolutely. You talk about the granite and another thing on, on the little narrow country roads, there's a lot of basically fences made of the stone from the earth that's been taken out of the earth. And I remember that very well from my childhood in, in Ireland. Uh, I guess the farmers had to get, get rid of some of this granite so they could farm the land. And, and what did they do? They made these, these essentially very thick fences all along the roadsides, which is part of the charm. And I jumped up on a couple of them to get some shots uh, yesterday of lighthouses and little chapels overlooking the sea and stuff. It's a very rustic land. Farming it uh, takes work and riding a bike here takes work. And 
Back to the race itself and the logistics, you're on the back of the moto. How does it compare to Strade Bianca and Paribé in terms of a grueling day? I had a very good driver who knew a lot of the cutoffs, and I actually wasn't on tons of rebeam. We would kind of jump across them sometimes. So that made my day a little bit easier. And because they were uh, a, a bit humid, I was not sliding around so much on the back of a motor, which was a nice thing. So I would say it was a bit a bit easier than some of those. I spent a lot of time on the coastline because I just thought it was so magnificent. And, and because it was a race of attrition, the pack just stayed really together uh, until really the last couple sections. I was finding myself just sort of taking the same picture of the leader of the pack coming down these ravine. And the guy is going to be a teammate. He's not going to be a race favorite or something like that. So I kind of... I didn't focus as much on the rebeam until the end of the race. Just the whole landscape is stunning, and especially that coastline. And, and uh, it's funny because yesterday I went and did a photo shoot with uh, Audrey Cordon Rajot, uh, the French national champion who comes from here. She was interested in how it was Tropeau and everything. And she's getting ready to do the, uh, the Tour of Brittany, which starts today for the women. And she said, oh, yeah, the, those roads are so spectacular. So I've been telling my girls on the team here, I've been telling my teammates here, Wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's stage is just so spectacular, so beautiful. And obviously, Brittany, is, she's lived her whole life there, and she's very proud of it. And she's like, the roads tomorrow that we're going on, those coastal roads are just spectacular. And I said, told all, the, all my teammates, make sure you take in the scenery as well, because we're going down a really special part of the country and the world. It's one of those races that is just naturally photogenic, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was tremendous. So you can see James's gallery from Trobo on the Ruler website at ruler.cc. Thank you, James, for that account of Trobo So that's all for Ruler Conversations this week. Thank you for listening. More next week. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.